0: Chat, presented by the Journal of Athletic Training, the official journal of the National Athletic Trainers Association. I'm Dr. Kara Radzak, an associate professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and your host. Today, I'm joined by three of the lead authors from the August issue of the Journal of Athletic Training, which was really rich in a lot of great new concussion research. So today, I'm joined by Dr. Uh, Justin Carr, who's an assistant professor in the Department of psychology at the University of Kentucky. His field is clinical neuropsychology with ongoing research interest in concussion, cognitive aging, and psychometrics of cognitive and symptom measurement. I'm also joined by Dr. Jacqueline Sassese. She is an assistant professor in the School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences at the Ohio State University College of Medicine, and a member of Ohio State's Chronic Brain Injury Program. Her research focuses on understanding the short and long-term effects of concussion um, and the overarching goal to inform public policy regarding youth sport participation and improve outcomes in current and former athletes. Finally, I am joined by Dr. Abigail Bretzen. She is a certified athletic trainer and a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Pennsylvania and the Penn Injury Science Center. Her primary research focuses on epidemiology of concussion and traumatic brain injury, emphasizing socio-economic, socio-demographic factors related to injury, including sex and gender differences to inform upon primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention. Thank you guys all for joining me today, Justin, Jacqueline, and Abby. Thank you so Thanks. much. Thanks,
1: Thanks, for us. Us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So like
0: I mentioned, this uh, August edition of the Journal of Athletic Training was super rich in a lot of concussion research. And we wanted to talk to you guys today because each of you had some um, really interesting take-home messages that athletic trainers could implement right away into their clinical practice, and especially when they're looking at their baseline and also return to play policies. So at this point in time, um, can we just can you give me a brief overview of what you looked at and what you found? Um, We'll go ahead and start alphabetically. Abby, can you tell me what you guys did?
1: Yeah. So uh, we had the opportunity to use the Michigan High School Athletic Association's head injury reporting system um, to look at time to return to play after athletes sustain a concussion. And so what they evaluate in the head injury reporting system is unconditional return, which athletes obtain from different medical providers and different medical facilities. And so that means that they have completed their full return to play protocol once they're able to go back to their sport. And um, so what we found using the study was that there were differences in Um, one, where the athletes sought care and that influenced return to play time. And we also were able to look at who was the first um, evaluator or who was involved in the initial concussion evaluation when the injury occurred. Um, And we found uh, differences in that, but importantly, athletic trainers were involved in about 70% of those initial evaluations. So not all the injuries had that evaluation and there were differences by sexes, but those were our two main outcomes that we looked at in the study. Thank you. Jacqueline?
2: Um, so like Abby, um, we had access to a pretty large database. Um, so from, for this study, our data came from the care consortium. Um, I'm sure most athletic trainers at this point are pretty familiar with the care consortium. Um, but for those who don't know, uh, it's a multi-site study, including, uh, 30 universities, including the four service academies. Um, and it involved baseline testing at all sites. And then, follow-up testing at several different time points. Um, And for this study, we used clinical reaction time, um, which I think we'll talk more about what the test is in a minute. But we were interested in what the recovery trajectory looked like for clinical reaction time, as well as um, whether or not one could reasonably use um, norm-based cutoff scores as opposed to individual baseline scores um, for assessing athlete's um, essentially throughout their recovery. So um, in this study, we used within six hours, uh, the 24 to 48-hour evaluation, and then at the time that they initiated their return to play protocol. Um, And so the goal, again, was to um, look at that recovery trajectory as well as compare individual baseline scores and norm-based scores.
0: Thank you. Justin, give us an overview of what y'all did.
3: Yeah, thank you. Um, it seems a common theme is access to large data sets. I think that's kind of become the, the running theme in um, concussion research. So we have access to a data set in Maine. It's called the Maine Concussion Management Initiative, MCMI. And um, it's, you know, it's data that exists in the world. It's athletic trainers administering impact in their clinical practice. Um, whether that be at baseline or um, following a suspected concussion injury. Um, So this baseline data set we have has tens of thousands of student athletes who've completed um, an impact baseline assessment. And um, we were looking at the data to see uh, language of administration. Um, which you know comes out as, as collected. And we found that there were uh, samples um, of students who completed baseline assessments in Spanish. And we were interested in seeing whether or not there were differences in baseline uh, testing uh, in, between participants who spoke, who, who completed the administration in English versus those who completed administration in Spanish, uh, both in terms of their test performances on the impact measure. Um, And also in terms of symptom reporting on the post-concussion symptom scale. One of the unique components of this data set is we can match um, student athletes on a number of characteristics, whether those be self-reported pre-existing conditions, uh, gender, age, um, things like that. Um, So we found um, uh, the sample of students who completed testing in Spanish. We matched them based on a variety of characteristics to a small sample who completed um, the test in English. And we did find subtle group differences uh, this is in alignment with previous studies. Our effects were a little bit smaller, which may be because we were able to so closely match. Uh, but we found slightly uh, lower performances on composite scores um, for a couple of composite scores, visual motor speed and reaction time among individual student athletes who completed the test in Spanish. And ever so slightly higher um, symptoms um, reporting, especially in terms of physical and effective symptoms among students who completed um, the PCSS in Spanish, as opposed as opposed to English.
0: Let's stick with your study for a little bit, Justin. And sure. can you provide us some information about how the Impact Get Test gets translated into Spanish? Were were your findings a translation issue? What are your thoughts?
3: Um, so that's a great question. Um, I actually have looked, um, you know, in terms of the available information on IMPACT, and I don't actually know the process by which they translated the instruments. So IMPACT is available in a number of different languages. I actually looked this up online um, before coming in here because... there has been research looking at differences based on language of administration. It's available in Spanish, French, Portuguese, Italian, German, Finnish, Norwegian, Swedish, to name a few. Yeah. There's many other languages. I don't I can't speak to the process by which it's been translated. But obviously, if a student athlete going to present and that's their primary language, you know, they're able to complete it in that language. Is that language equivalent? Like, do things differ in terms of the way things might be communicated between languages? We actually had Spanish speaking authors kind of review some of the symptom reporting, um, and they didn't necessarily see too many issues with the translations. Um, So I don't think it's a reflection necessarily of just a translational um, issue. Um, There's also just kind of cultural components in the way that people who you know come from Spanish-speaking communities may respond to things like questionnaires. Um, There's also in neuropsychology for a long time there's been interest in cultural differences in cognitive performances, and it's kind of hard for us to think about. We think about these test numbers as being very like this is a test number. It's objective, but there's actually a number of variables that are associated with the test performance. A lot of people don't think about this, but like acculturative status in the United States is actually associated with cognitive test performances. Um, There's sometimes differences that are observed related to gender. Um, That's why we have different gender norms for boys and girls. Um, there are obviously differences associated with age. You know, an 80-year-old is going to be much slower than a 20-year-old on the task of reaction time. We simply know this. Um, So it's just another variable to kind of consider when we're, we're interpreting test performances that language does play a role. Um, What is language kind of approximating? A lot of things, you know, a culture of experiences, exposure and history to different educational systems, um, you know, the comfort of um, and familiarity with testing in a you know, predominantly English speaking environment, all important things to kind of consider when we're trying to interpret these test performances.
0: So what are your recommendations for, um, a clinician who's in a situation where maybe they don't have baseline testing on an athlete that their first language or their more comfortable language is Spanish. Um, what are your recommendations for somebody who's taking that post concussive, uh, impact test in Spanish based upon what you guys found at baseline?
3: It's a great question. So one of the kind of ongoing issues is um, in neuropsychology is if we're evaluating somebody who speaks, um, you know, a language other than English or prefers to communicate in that language, but let's say we're a clinician and we simply don't have access to um, someone who can administer the test in a different language, or we ourselves do not communicate in that language. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden we have this conundrum where we're like, you're more comfortable communicating in another language, but I'm not capable of of evaluating you in that language. I think if someone had greater comfort in communicating in one language You know the impact uh, battery is automated so we have kind of the unique privileges clinicians to administer a battery in the language that the person prefers to communicate in you know if a student athlete presented to me and they said you know i recently moved here to the united states i'm a little bit familiar with english but actually my primary comfort is spanish then i'd say okay maybe we want to administer this in spanish but what if their primary comfort was communicating in spanish verbally but they actually never received any formal education in spanish and then we know that all of the stuff is based off of reading in Spanish. The instructions are written words. And all of a sudden, we kind of have to ask ourselves, what are you more comfortable reading information in? Mm-hmm. So, you know, communication is one thing, but the test involves the reading of the symptom reporting and the reading of information. So, really, it's kind of what's your comfort in reading a language? Um, and that would probably guide the selection. Certainly, if someone was not comfortable reading English, the performance and especially the symptom reporting is probably gonna be more invalid. So we certainly want the person to be completing a test in the language they're more comfortable with.
0: Thank you. And then Jacqueline, you looked at baseline as well. Tell us what you specifically evaluated. Give us some more information about that reaction time clinical test.
2: Sure, so um, the clinical reaction time test um, was developed by J.P. Eckner at University of Michigan. Um, and it was meant to be something that could be more readily administered clinically and a functional task. Um, so the, the actual setup for the task is, you know, you have an athlete resting their um, hand on a table and you have a, an instrument, which is essentially like a hockey puck with a wooden dowel attached to it. And you can wrap that wooden dowel in you know, friction tape and then mark every half centimeter. And the administrator drops the the stick, and the athlete tries to catch the stick as quickly as possible. And then based on, you know, the distance the stick traveled, um, you can compute the person's reaction time. Um, And in our case, uh, as I mentioned before, we were looking at the recovery trajectory. Um, So in our findings suggested that the clinical reaction time performance did decline um, at the six-hour time point, within six hours, um, and that persisted at the 24- to 48-hour time point. Um, But by the time the athlete initiated their return-to-play protocol, um, their uh, clinical reaction time scores had returned to either baseline or norm, um, and there were actually no uh, differences between um, the using an individualized baseline and the norm-based cutoff score and interpreting those clinical reaction time performances following concussion.
0: And you guys looked at this using the care data. So that's collegiate athletes. How would this potentially transfer to a different population like pediatric or secondary school
2: setting? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think the key... Um, is that the norm-based cutoff scores need to be Mm -hmm. population-specific. And so in our case, uh, this was actually a follow-up paper to um, a previous paper published in Journal of Athletic Training last year uh, that established those norm-based cutoff scores. um, And we looked at what factors influenced uh, baseline clinical reaction time scores And the um, primary factors that influenced baseline performance um, were sex and sport type, um, sport type being uh, contact, non-contact, contact, contact limited contact and Mm non-contact sports. Um, And so we used the appropriate um, sex and sport type baseline scores uh, to interpret uh, the data in this study. Um, so I think that in in our study of predominantly collegiate athletes, age wasn't a significant factor, but our band, our age band was relatively narrow. Um, so I think had you included like youth athletes through collegiate, um, that would have been a factor. So I think that when establishing clinical reaction time baseline scores, they need to be population specific.
0: And how often would you recommend somebody post-concussion using this clinical reaction time to assess um, based upon what you guys found with the trajectory of recovery?
2: So I think that this is just another tool that um, healthcare providers have in their toolbox, right? Um, The uh, sensitivity and specificity was not high enough to be a standalone test, um, and that's Consistent with other concussion assessments, we ha- we don't have a tool right now that can be used as a standalone test. Um, but I think the important finding is that um, the in this study the uh, reaction time scores did recover by the time athletes began their return to play progression. Um, so I think it could be something that's you know readily implemented um, with a comprehensive assessment um, across various domains and. Um, you know, just further support the clinical decision-making. And $20 to buy a Dow rod and Yeah, it's very cheap, very quick to administer. Um, and so, you know, just another tool in the toolbox.
0: How does this reaction time test um, do compared to other reaction time tests? Because, Justin, one of the things that you guys found specifically was that the visual motor and reaction time was different, right? So maybe y'all two should
2: talk. (laughs) Yeah, actually, you know, it's pretty interesting. Um, uh, There was a lit review um, published by Landon Lumpke, I don't know if that was in Journal of Athletic Training. I'm not sure. Um, but it was essentially comparing different types of clinical reaction time tests, uh, or not clinical reaction time, different types of reaction time testing, Mm -hmm. um, whether it be functional tasks or computer-based tasks. Um, so I would, uh, suggest that people who are interested in that comparison, um, can definitely check out his, his work and, um, The meta-analysis they did is pretty comprehensive, so it should give them some insight there.
3: It's just interesting to think about in terms of reaction time. Like, you know, people will use a lot of different names for things that we think we're measuring, Um, and certain tests may be very, very different. You know, catching um, a stick is very different than tapping at a keyboard. Um, Also, in terms of processing, sometimes it's like a task where it's like we want you to scan something and cross it out with a pencil and paper, I don't know about you, but I don't use a pencil and paper very often anymore. I think what would probably the most valid for me would be tapping on a keyboard. I also don't catch sticks all that often. <laughs> um, so it's just kind of this question of are we measuring the same thing um, and what is actually the best measure? And ultimately, that can actually vary by population. Um you know, an older adult may be much less comfortable in front of a keyboard. And although in athletic training, you may not evaluate older adults very often, you know, perhaps, you know, that that might be something you want to consider is age and comfort with technology. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, just a, a couple of thoughts.
2: Yeah. And it's a bit of a nuance, but actually most of these tests are really measuring the response time, like the time it takes to complete a task, not the actual reaction time. Um, and so that's something else you know, like how much of a motor task is required to complete it. Um, In this case, the motor component can be quite large relative to tapping on a keyboard. Um, So that can be a factor that's, you know, population specific.
0: And Abigail, you looked at things at the end, right? You looked at that return to play. So give us some more insight into what you guys found with the in particularly the influence that an athletic trainer's presence played in the athletes return to play clearance?
1: Yeah, so um, using the large database, we were able to determine um, who was involved in that initial evaluation. And like I said, about 70% of cases had an athletic trainer and that varied between males and females overall. So I think about um, 74% of males had an athletic trainer and 66% of females had an athletic trainer. So it kind of highlights a potential um, disparity in access to who's there at the time of injury. Um, And that's really important that I say that because within the database, we didn't have, if the school had full-time, part-time or no access to athletic trainer overall, it was just who was there at the time of injury. Um, But as I say that, the person involved in that initial evaluation, if it was one or many, influenced the ultimate um, location and medical provider that the athlete sought clearance from. So, in the state of Michigan, athletic athletes have to get clearance from um, an option of four different providers. It can be a medical doctor, a doctor of osteopathic medicine, a physician assistant, or a nurse practitioner. So, those are the four options, um, and who. Depending on um, who saw the athlete first, kind of influenced where they got their um, clearance from ultimately. So they could also get clearance anywhere from urgent care, ready care facilities to a hospital, from primary care physician's office, um, from a team physician, or from a neurologist. So those were the um, different options. And so Having an athletic trainer in the initial evaluation um, influenced where those athletes got care, which ultimately then influenced the recovery time um, or the time to return to play um, based on those different facilities. So I think it's it's a good conversation that we start um, thinking about how can we get more athletic trainers for Um, everyone to have at their potential injury onset so that we then can influence those future care directions.
0: So were there any routes to return to play clearance that displayed a more conservative approach than others?
1: Yeah so what we found the longest time um, or the median time to return to play was seen at the neurologist's office Um, followed by the team physician, and the shortest time was seen at the urgent care um, or those ready care facilities. So um, what we provided within the article is potential explanations of why. So um, different training, different medical expertise, different uh, management practices are seen across different providers practicing in those different facilities. So that can influence management practice for concussion overall. Um, and, and what we found is that the team physician and the neurologist had the longest time. So they're probably using those more conservative approaches, going through those full return to play protocols, um, more conservatively, maybe they're taking extra steps or extra days, um, between steps, um, to make sure that those athletes are, are, um, suited to return to play most safely.
0: And I just want to put out there, so what you guys found. And seven days for urgent care, ready care. And define for us again, what was returned to play? So this is full, you're back in a game, correct?
1: Yeah. And so when we look at those overall reports of numbers that we reported, it's the median time. So some half of those athletes at urgent care were returned sooner than seven days and half were returned um In seven days or more. And so those differences, I think are, are really important in the big scheme of things. Seven days might not seem a lot, but in terms of athletes, um, recovering from their injury, that, that may be, um, um, something to consider a big, a big time to consider. So, um, yeah, and then one thing I wanted to point out through this analysis that athletic trainers should use in their conversations as athletes are returning, um, this display, this um, Kaplan-Meyer analysis that we use to describe these recovery times by provider and overall, really displays the the individual progress that athletes can have in their return. So not every athlete is going to return at that median. Um, time, as we described in the paper, it's very fluid. Things, Many things can influence that return time um, that both Jacqueline and Justin touched on and others in, conco- in the concussion world overall. And so I think we really have to communicate that to our athletes, our coaches, our parents, that um, concussion recovery time is individual. And I think and I hope that we all keep continuing to look at factors that do influence the recovery time overall.
0: Yeah, I think that it was very eye-opening to look at the especially that urgent care and the rapid care numbers. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have a sense... Uh, Of how many of these were given physicians or healthcare provider notes to return to play that were um, prospectively provided, right? That the they come back from the doctor saying can return to play in seven days, right? It's been a long time since I practiced in the high school setting, but I remember getting those and saying, "This is one after your concussion. How do we know this? Do you have a sense of that?"
1: Yes. Yeah, so actually in the state of Michigan, the return clearance has to be unconditional. So they have to have made it through all their stages of the recovery. Um, and if you think about the the teams that do have athletic trainers that work with the team physician, there may be more communication. We don't necessarily know that from the study, just from um, clinical practice. We might get a feeling of that. But so here they all had to go through their return to play protocol um as stated across the the state of michigan so it had to be an unconditional return and i know that does vary by state so that might not be um the similar case for everyone in in high school across the u.s but yeah, the other return had to be unconditional which is kind of um surprising in terms of when you think about seven days and that being the median um like how were those athletes going through the full return to Blake protocol in in that lower amount of time is is kind of um, more shocking or or weary but yeah the, the return had to be unconditional in this setting
0: definitely makes you think <laughs> yeah <laughs> thank you so as we kind of wrap up, I'd like to hear from each of you guys as athletic trainers and healthcare providers are, are potentially reevaluating um, their concussion policies and procedures, particularly in what you guys found in regard to baseline testing and return to play clearance. What new information might they want to consider based upon your findings? And we'll go through again the same order, Justin.
3: A great question. I think one of the things that um, I hope people consider is that cultural variables can play a role in um, neurocognitive test performances and symptom reporting, but also it can be a double-edged sword. Um, when we think about like certain scores being lower in certain communities, that can be misconstrued as like being representative ability, whereas it might be a bias or difference in the measurement um, that isn't reflective of like a, a true group difference, but a flaw in the way that we're trying to capture it and measure it. Um, if you, for example, take that um, there might be lower test performances in one particular community, um, that may might result in people re- telling people to return to play when they're still experiencing impairment. Um, that could be an issue. But there's also could be the same thing where maybe they return and this test tends to... Um, um, uh produce lower scores from a particular community. And that lower score could be a return to play, could indicate return to play. And then all of a sudden it's like, hey, um, this person has returned. Now you're holding them away from their opportunity um, because of an issue with the measurement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think one thing that Abby mentioned, which is this concept of the median and 50% are below and 50% are above, is the fact that these test results and these you know studies we do they're based on mean effects right so they're not representative of every single individual patient or or student athlete that's going to come in and see you so it's mostly you know it's it's difficult because it's not like an empirical recommendation of this score should be this lower within this group and there aren't necessarily like spanish language norms or or even uh, norms that are adjusted for race or ethnicity with for impact for example so the the it's It's kind of about nuance and appreciating nuance as you start to evaluate patient or student athletes who are of diverse backgrounds who have different experiences in life than the student athlete you might typically interact with in a rural school in Ohio. Um, to start actually thinking, hey, um, maybe I need to have a little bit more nuance in the way that I'm thinking about these test performances. Not just take them as numbers, but take them as numbers that are produced by an individual with a particular experience and and try to think about that when I'm trying to get them to re-engage in sport.
2: Thank you. Jacqueline? Um, I think there's a couple of take-home messages. Um, One being that you can, um, with appropriate norm-based cutoff scores, you can use those. Um, for interpreting clinical reaction time scores post-concussions. I think it's also important, you know, this is a $20 test, um, if that. And so having a variety of tools available um, until until the day comes when we have a test, um, a single standalone test that has pretty high sensitivity and specificity, having a variety of different outcome measures um, can really bolster the assessment process. And so... Um, this is a pretty quick and easy one. And um, again, sensitivity and specificity is not super high, but um, it is, you know, comparable to other uh, concussion assessment tools.
1: Thanks. Abby. Yeah. Um, so I kind of just want to echo both what Justin and Jacqueline said first overall. And and that's because uh, many different factors can influence recovery, both in the tools that you're using to assess and manage the whole recovery process, Um, and also that there's many different social determinants of health that can influence how someone experiences their injury or condition that we should continue um, to look at, be it cultural differences, be it um, team differences, be it um, many things that aren't even currently studied in the athletic training world yet, and I think we can progress and move forward in that way. and just overall, the that this recovery process needs to um, be managed with a multifaceted approach and that those approaches could differ based on where you're going and who's involved in your treatment or management process, which could ultimately influence your um, recovery or your full return to play time.
0: And as we wrap up, I want to know from you guys, what are you What are you most excited about the direction that concussion research is going? What is most promising to you? What are you really, um, really interested in right now? Open floor. I
2: can, I can go first. Um, So this is kind of unrelated to the, to the published paper, but I think one of the things that I am most excited for is that, um, the level of science is really improving and our tools available are improving. Um, And that is on both the assessment as well as the rehabilitation side of things. Um, You know, the prospect of getting to a point where we have a blood test. um, We're here at Ohio state using virtual reality for rehabilitation. Um, So really there's just a, a plethora of new things coming out every day. And, um, ultimately, hopefully it will help our athletes, um, recover better, perhaps recover faster, um, and, and really have better lifelong outcomes from their concussions.
1: Yeah. Um, what I'm mostly excited about is I'm going to say this broadly is the amount of people that are, are care about concussion now and care about head injury overall, because so many systems, because so many people care, put in place. That's one allowing large data collection that helps inform research, and help, that research then can help inform um, policy, and ultimately making sport safer. One to try to prevent the injury from happening overall, and two to lessen the impact, both in short and long term, that these potential injuries could have. So that's kind of where I'm hoping my future directions are going, and I'm excited that others are are moving this way too and and care about it enough to allow future studies to happen.
3: I think what I'm most excited about is kind of the the interdisciplinary approach that's emerged in concussion, where there's a lot of folks from a lot of different disciplines taking different lenses to kind of understanding prognosis, assessment, and recovery. And also not just the multiple lenses on a patient, but the appreciation for the individual patient. This mm-hmm. precision rehabilitation approach where we're focusing on exactly what's going on with this patient and really trying to tap into that and research are their characteristics of the patient, whether it be that they are, you know, their their gender identity, um, their their race or ethnicity, their their cultural background, the language they speak clinical conditions, personal history of mental health conditions, personal history of migraines or headaches. All of those things can be informative of the way that a patient presents both before a concussion and after a concussion. And I think as we closely focus on the way that all of those variables kind of interact to create a clinical picture, I think we'll actually be able to have a greater appreciation for what recovery looks like for the individual patient and really guide us in terms of working with a student athlete one-on-one, which is what we all really want to inform to do. Um, We just have these big old data sets to try to inform that.
0: Thank you guys all so much. And I think collectively, you guys have shown the power of the big concussion data sets that are coming out now. Um, We didn't have that in the recent past, right? and So it's really, really exciting to see what um, y'all are doing and what you're going to continue to do um, with these large data sets. So I'd just like to thank you again, Drs. Bretzen, Kastis, and Carr. Thank you so much for joining me today. And just a reminder to everybody, these manuscripts are open access, as is all of the Journal of Athletic Training's um, material through our website. So thank you guys again for joining me.
3: Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having us.